When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hammer finally hit correctly for Denmark in one of the games of the tournament as they hammer Russia 4-1 in one of the most cathartic moments this summer. Belgium confirmed top spot in Group B with a routine 2-0 win over Finland which has the Finns awaiting today's result between Croatia and Scotland to see if they can hang in the tournament. Similarly looking over their shoulder is Ukraine who will face a similar weight tomorrow to see if the Group E contest will qualify them. Meanwhile, the Netherlands confirmed a third straight 100% record for the group winners after thrashing North Macedonia 3-0. I am Jay from What If Football, this is Euro Daily, episode 16, available on Acast, Amazon, Spotify and Apple. And if you are feeling so generous, if you are enjoying today's show, drop us a five-star review, please. Also available on Patreon, that is patreon.com forward slash what if football we will be providing seven days a week content 50 weeks a year after the european championships all for the price of a lovely refreshing pint up here in yorkshire that is three pounds contemporary football podcast nostalgic podcast and football manager content as well let's get stuck in to today's show The emotions were running high as ever in Copenhagen as Denmark faced their third and final group game and had a little bit to do in order to qualify for the knockout stages. Kudrashov was in for Barinov to make it a back three for Russia. Meanwhile, Denmark made no changes from the team that narrowly, so narrowly lost to Belgium a few days prior. And what we saw really in the in the game against Russia was the it was a calmer Denmark than previously. Against Belgium, of course, they took the lead early within two minutes through uh, through Yusuf Poulsen, but they were they were full throttle, emotions were running high, as was to be expected really. They were here, but it was mainly from it was mainly from the pain crowd, not the not the athletes on the pitch, which served to give Denmark a bit more uh, solidity, onus and um fluidity going into the second half as opposed to when Belgium threw on a few of their top players who were lacking minutes but they still tore them apart in the second half in that 2-1 win for Belgium. Obviously against Belgium they rattled them in the first half and 
rightly so they were the better team, but obviously there was always going to be that drop-off. They couldn't maintain that for 90 minutes against most teams at this tournament, really. Perhaps they could have done against Russia, because Russia, in my opinion, last night were pretty abject. But in terms of the occasion, Denmark, I think, definitely played it a few days ago. In this time, though, against Russia in the 4-1 win, which it was, they played more the game rather than the occasion. The pattern early on for Denmark was to keep the ball fairly patiently. Russia sat incredibly deep. They only needed a point to qualify. Let's not forget they would have um, finished second with a uh, not favourable last 16 tie against Wales, but it's got it got to be an easier tie than against, say, Italy, for example. And then Denmark, when, when the time arose, they would clip long balls into the channels to unnerve Russia a bit. They did look very shaky. They looked shaky in the, in the last two games, even against Finland, who haven't been all that fantastic going forward. And obviously Belgium, they were torn apart, weren't they? Um, Joachim Myler was uh, positive on the left wing-back role. And there's been a glut of left wing-backs, really, this tournament that have been absolutely fantastic. Spinazzola, Gersons, and now uh, Mela, which is, of course, um, his Atalanta teammate, Gersons and Mela. Um, him and Damsgaard drifting into that left channel, I thought were uh, fantastic. It also helped that Russia were Russia were exceedingly careless with possession. They rarely ventured forward. They had, for me, they have to rely on individuals or stick to that one-dimensional plan that I've mentioned on podcasts gone by, where they just fling it up to Zuba, hope he either knocks it down or creates a chance for himself and score. And if you think about it, the chances that they have won, that they've they've scored came from individual brilliance at this tournament, not from Artem Zuba receiving the ball from Long and uh, heading it in or crushing it down for somebody else. The goals that they've scored from this tournament have been that piece of magic from uh, Alexei Miranchuk against Finland and, of course, the penalty, which we'll get onto later, but it wasn't, for me, a penalty, really, but uh, we'll get by that. The uh, individual spark for Russia in this game, well, there was one opportunity that they had really and that was it apart from the penalty and that was uh, Alexander Golovin. He had a great dribble through the Denmark uh, defence. They had a problem Denmark a little bit in their openness in the first half because Christensen would push up his... He can play defensive midfield as well, Kai can play central midfield and I think in that back three, Denmark were looking to push high with uh, obviously Myler and... um, Daniel Vass on the wing-back rolls and Christensen, almost like a half-pack at times um, in front of the two in defence. And Russia were exploiting the space. They weren't really, really creating much, but Golovin had a, a good chance save by Peter Schmeichel, and, uh, Peter Schmeichel, Kasper Schmeichel rather. And um, that was about all that Russia offered for me. And they were they were beginning to find spaces, but they weren't threatening at all. And that's been the problem with Russia. They, they could have had... Um, if they were a bit more incisive against Finland, they could have had a lot more opportunities there. Belgium, there was no hope for them there. And likewise here, there was very, very, very little hope, really. Denmark were getting quieter and quieter as the first half wore on, and you you're starting to wonder where the first goal was coming from. They were creating less and less chances. These, they were a bit more solid, they were a bit more calmer, as I say, in the, in the first half here than they were against Belgium. But then it needed a bit of a, a moment of brilliance, and uh, of course... Damsgaard's superb goal crashed into the net. The, ten- the lack of tension in the net at the Parkin Stadium was fantastic. It just got the ball just got enveloped in the net and it was a fantastic goal. Obviously, not even the best goal of the game, which we'll get onto later. But uh, Damsgaard, I thought, was he was largely quiet. He was getting into that left channel. He was drifting centrally to receive and this is where the goal came from. He was trying his best to occupy different spaces. Dick 
different positions to uh, to capitalize on rushes. They were they were very deep. The five, they were, I thought they were quite lazy to push out and um, sort of close him down really. And then obviously all it needed was a curling shot. It wasn't even fully in the corner as well. The Rus- the young Russian goalkeeper couldn't save it though. And Demak at the races, of course, one 0 wouldn't be enough. And uh, Demak knew, knew, knew that the uh, they needed another goal and they made a similar start to the second half. And just as the first goal came from nothing, the second goal came from even less, didn't it? And uh, I think it was Kuzyaev on that left wing back row played an absolutely exquisite through ball. Um, the only problem was that it didn't find somebody in Russian red, but in uh, a way Danish white. And beyond the goalkeeper and Yusuf Poulsen was there, tucks it in, grabs his second goal of the tournament, grabs Denmark's second goal and... That sort of um, serendipity is something that was uh, that was quite well received across Europe because Denmark deserved that. Let's be honest from the uh, from all the events of the previous ten days, from obviously Christian Eriksen's collapse, the loss against Finland, the hard fought defeat against Belgium when they probably could have had a point out of that or a win, and now they've been gifted a brilliant opportunity. But then it was snatched away, wasn't it by? The referee, it was, they were, tu- they were touch tight and the Russian striker spins, spins the uh, defender. It, it goes down very soft. As I said yesterday, we're not that podcast to uh, forensically analyse refereeing decisions, but I'll say it's soft. Artem Zuba put it right down the middle and then all of a sudden we're in this sort of inertia now because Belgium and Finland were still drawing nil-nil. The scoreline helped absolutely nobody because Denmark needed a two-goal win. Russia needed a point. So both teams were... And that was the beauty of it for Denmark. It sort of favoured them because Russia had to come out and play. Otherwise, they were just not getting through. Their goal difference would have been minus three with three points, even below Russia's, even below Finland's if they went on to lose. So they were never going to... They were never going to qualify with that. So they needed an extra point. And then it, it was just one of the best moments, I think... For me, it's probably the best moment of the tournament so far. The ball squirts out to Andreas Christensen. One touch, bang, straight into the top corner. My God, I celebrated that like I was a Dane and God knows what Danish people were doing. They must have gone absolutely wild. They did in the stadium at least. And it was um, just getting goosebumps thinking about it. It was one of those releases that even if you're as a neutral and I was probably flagging away from neutrality at this point because the story of it, the comeback, everything was just fantastic. And um, yeah, just the best moment of the tournament so far for me. And it'll take some to beat that. Probably only England winning it or a last minute winner for England or Scotland or Wales perhaps. Um, But yeah, it was just one of those moments that it was just absolutely fantastic. And then rounding it off, the player of the game for me, Joachim Myler, composure, threads it through. Clips it beyond the goalkeeper. What a goal. It was just one of those. It was just Russia pushing for another goal. Push, they needed two at this stage and they just capitulation. And to be fair, Russia deserved it. Defensively, they were uh, just an absolute shambles again. And they were against um, they were against Belgium as well. They've conceded seven goals, which is only behind Turkey and North Macedonia at this tournament. We've both got eight. Uh, meanwhile, Denmark going to the... Uh, Going to the last 16, but where did they finish? Well, Belgium played Finland in St. Petersburg. Tim Spav was back in for Schürrle after the reverse change was made for the Russia game, so 
a little bit of a refreshing in that midfield. It might be might have been Tim Sparv's final game or potential to be his final game if they went if they got knocked out, um, which we're still waiting on that, aren't we? So um, because he's he's just been released by his club. I think they play. I think he used to play in Cyprus um, at AEL Limassol, and um, he's thirty four. He could be his uh, final international game as well. Meanwhile, Belgium made a whole raft of changes. They only needed a point to uh, finish. Finish in the uh, top position and Finland, quickly enough, have un- been unbeaten against Belgium in their last seven, <laughs> which is fantastic. And to be fair, I wasn't too impressed with Belgium, which is um, kind of forgivable because it is a much changed team, but it is a team with names that need fitness. Hazard, Aiden Hazard, that is. Torgan Hazard was uh, ruled out with a, a little knock. I think he'll be coming back for the uh, last 16 game. They've also got an extended break now for roughly about a week or so. Um, Witzel, he's only played 45 minutes since, um, or 30 minutes rather than since uh, January. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne got a few, got a full game under his belt. And there were little warning signs for Belgium, even though I thought it was slow, turgid, a bit sloppy on the ball, really. It was more considered than incisive. There were warning signs there routinely, and it was the same two men finding each other again and again and again. Kevin De Bruyne finds a good Lukaku run on the shoulder of the defender. Lukaku drags it wide, though, but... For me, Belgium, we always try and predict who's going to win the tournament early, don't we? Everyone's saying Italy, people are saying France. I think more people are saying Belgium after the last couple of games, and obviously quick to make that comparison with Italy. They they, they made the same changes than Italy. Italy obviously went through, sailed through, perfect seven goals non-conceded. Belgium conceded that um, that one goal against Denmark early on, so there's very little between them in terms of numbers. Here they made similar changes to Italy. I think they both made eight changes. Um, eight changes outfield as well, kept the same keeper. There was the same jeopardy as well, thanks to the head-to-head. If Finland beat, if Finland beat Belgium here, they would have gone above Belgium, they would have uh, won the group, uh, had Russia not uh, lost 4-1 to Denmark in Copenhagen. Likewise, Italy had to get a point. So it was the same jeopardy. I didn't think they looked as sharp as Italy's um, second string. Perhaps it means that Belgium's second string isn't as good. The drop-off is a lot more when you consider that... um, When you consider Roberto Mancini's made... He's probably... I think he's played something like 60 players in between 2018 and now in terms of getting his team together. And there's been a whole... Shake up as well with Pessina coming in late for Stefano Sansi, and all the things that come with that. You know, Lorenzo Pellegrini, he's had to uh, vacate the squad as well. So, there's been even those two players leaving the squad, Italy's second string still looks better. It also could infer that Italy's replacements were a lot more match fit. Witzel only played now what, a game and a half since January, which, you know, is. It's to play an international tournament football, especially in central midfield, you need a few more minutes under your belt to be match fit. I don't think he'll play in the last 16 from the off because depending on his fitness, really. Kevin De Bruyne looks at it, to be fair. Eden Hazard completed his first 90 minutes in what must be in a generation, <laughs> almost like a year, probably even more than a year with um, things in uh, Real Madrid. He's not played since the... Uh, for Belgium in 18 months prior to this tournament, so... He's clearly not up there. He's not fully fit, obviously. So it, the comparisons between Belgium and Italy, they will probably, it looks now, face each other in the quarterfinals. And um, this is obviously quick to compare. By the quarterfinals, you'd expect that all these players, perhaps maybe Witzel and Eden Hazard aside, will be match fit. Though 
Kevin De Bruyne was, uh, he was sort of, aside from the warning signs given to Finland with his uh, lovely little lofted through balls to uh, Romelu Lukaku, he's, he's getting a bit frustrated, I feel, because he, br- he broke into the penalty area, beat three men, almost produced an own goal, which is something you're not... Don't necessarily see all that much from De Bruyne. Usually, especially in his, when he's in a two and a three four three, he usually sits deep and plays the ball through. But he was breaking breaking the lines trying to get through Finland. Finland, to be fair, they they play uh, they played a five three two here, exceedingly defensive. They only needed a point, a bit like Russia, really, to go through. And um, like they did against Russia, Finland were slightly deep looking for that counter, but Finland offered nothing, as to be expected, really going forward. I thought Nasser Chadli and Leandro. Trossard weren't as dynamic wing backs really and it sort of served to make things quite narrow in terms of Belgium's attacking prospects although I was excited by Jeremy Doku I thought he was by far the brightest thing about um, about Belgium outside of De Bruyne and Lukaku De Bruyne was warming up his uh, passing range he crafted a long ball to Lukaku again but his header this time was saved and it was just it was just going through the gears a little bit and it was the same two men and the only problem I have with that is a bit like Russia you see there in the last game relying on individuals De Bruyne and Lukaku are probably the deadliest combination at this um, at this tournament maybe outside of Mbappe and Griezmann but who knows at this stage really but De Bruyne and Lukaku have shown it a lot more in terms of his tournament anyway Doku was finding himself on the right, he was finding himself on the left. He had a curled shot saved, which was probably the best chance of the first half. And um, on the other flank, I think Eden Hazard, he needs a lot more minutes. And it probably, as well, he could do with a goal or an assist for confidence, really. And it looked as though the game was slightly opening up in the second half. Finland were pushing for more goals and for more chances in the first few minutes of the second half. Probably more so than the entirety of the first half, really. And uh, they were getting forward. It opened up avenues for Jeremy Doku, a bit more space for him, but I think he's he's an exciting, he's very direct and he's a very tricky winger. He knows uh, knows how to get by players and I think um, he probably lacks that bit of composure, maybe, but maybe it is because he's also sharing a field with Kevin De Bruyne and Romelu Lukaku who are like composure personified. Uh, he's, he's probably he's a little bit raw, but I think uh, Belgium needed that in this game because... It was a game where Finland were going to sit deep, play for the draw perhaps, maybe nick a goal on the counter. And you need that unknown ability, that unpredictability from Jeremy Doku. And I thought he was their best player by far in this game. Hazard was getting into the game as well. He forced a save just after the hour mark and Belgium were definitely going through the gears around this stage. You've got um, Kevin De Bruyne with a, a lovely threaded through ball to Romelu Lukaku on the shoulder of the defender. Puts it in the net. Everyone thinks it's 1-0. Even in Copenhagen, they were cheering, thinking it was 1-0, and then it was disallowed for offside. It absolutely inches. Centimetres almost. It's his toe. If he had size 8 shoes, he'd have been onside sort of thing. And um, it's clear that Finland were going to concede in the next sort of 10 to 15 minutes. And when the goal went in, it was it was, it was harsh on Finland, I thought. Vermaelen headed it from a set piece, so a set piece as well, so it's even more frustrating Hits the angle of post and bar, hits the goalkeeper Lukas Toretsky, uh, 1-0, 17 minutes to go. And it's just so frustrating if you're Finnish and you're 14, 15 minutes away from from the last 16, essentially. And um, Finland now were, 
as it stood with uh, Denmark only winning 2-1. Finland had gone from second right the way down to fourth. Um, but Denmark's goals, obviously three and four, they uh, put Finland back to third and within a chance of uh, that third place qualification. The fourth goal for Denmark, though, was offset by Lukaku with his trademark goal. Though. That's a, the goal we all recognise from Romelu Lukaku. Touch tight with the defender, spins him, and the finish was just easy. And it's sort of like... It looked as though it was just through the motions, that as though it was on autopilot, and that's how clinical Lukaku is. Touch, turn, bang, goal. It's 2-0. And that goal really... Um, really does not help Finland by goal difference at all. They are now fourth in terms of the fourth in terms of the fourth third place teams that will qualify with three more groups to play, which is not a good sign really when you consider that the teams and the games to come Croatia playing Scotland when a winner in either one of those knocks Finland out. Also you've got Sweden, uh, you've got Slovakia, you've got Spain. If there's a if there's not a Slovakia win in that game Finland are um, Finland are also out. They are a whisker from elimination, but they have to wait until uh, they could. They could be waiting until tonight if there's a draw in Croatia Scotland game at Hamden. They'll they'll hang in there by a thread. Um, this will also play into the permutations around Ukraine state of the tournament, which we'll get onto after the after the break as well. But they also need Sweden to win. They need Slovakia to win. They need Croatia and Scotland to draw. If all those things happen, Finland are in the last sixteen. Who they'll play is anyone's guess. But these results, they confirmed England, Switzerland, Czech Republic, Sweden and France were all through going into those games towards the back end of the group stages. And I ask what stops Belgium now? Well, they've had minutes pumped into the players that needed it. Much needed minutes. They'll get some more minutes in the last 16, which looks like it's going to be a favourable tie. Um, it's pointless trying to predict the third players, as I've said on numerous episodes gone by. Um, it looks seems it seems set that the quarterfinal against Italy in Munich next Friday night looks um, pretty much set if uh, Italy can beat Austria, uh, which is a little spoiler for after the break, and um, Belgium can get through, through their last 16 tie. Italy seems strong now, but everything can change in an international tournament on a day-by-day basis. Of course, Belgium could still face third in Group F, which could be Portugal, Germany, France, couldn't it? Um, but that's only one of seven possible scenarios, so it's quite slim that they'll play the winner, uh, the third place in Group F. It'll likely be Switzerland. It'll likely be uh, third from Group E. Most likely the third place from Group E, which, of course, it could still be Spain, couldn't it, if there's a draw there? Um, but we'll uh, continue with all those permutations. And the 2021 trivial teaser after this short break. Welcome back. So yesterday, the answer was Mate Vidra. Well done to the following people who got that correct. Jake Collinson, Maracas Flute, Pazar SAFC and a welcome return to a Notice Nostalgia trivial teaser regular in Mark Byrne. Well done. Congratulations. Four of you got it correct. Let's see if we can make it a little bit harder, shall we? And um, also, George Spencer, no piggybacking on other people. I'm not going to shout you out on that one. <laughs> but uh, but um, yeah, four correct answers. There. Four and a half, let's say. Um, the answer today. I am a central midfielder. I've played underneath Arsene Wenger and Lucien Favre. I've played alongside Andre Terstegen, Togan Hazard, Andreas Christensen, Aaron Ramsey and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. I'm a central midfielder. We've played underneath Arsene Wenger, Lucien Favre. I've played alongside Andre Terstegen, Togan Hazard, Andreas Christensen, Aaron Ramsey and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. If you think you know that answer, tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube. We will find out the answer 
tomorrow. After this short break, we'll be rounding up the Group C action, Austria versus Ukraine, that all or nothing tie. Netherlands hoping to make it three from three against North Macedonia and Amsterdam. And of course, we'll be previewing today's big action from Group D. Welcome back. So the game I was most looking forward to from yesterday, perhaps misplaced slightly, was Austria versus Ukraine because whoever won that match finished second. And if Ukraine could get a draw, then of course they would finish second as well. Obviously, things happen, don't they? Only one change for Ukraine whilst uh, Florian Grilich joined Marko Arnautovic in returning to the eleven and a third different lineup up front for Franco Foda's team, of course, enforced by the... Uh, Suspension for Marco and Altovic for the previous game. A welcome break for uh, David Alaba though was playing left back in more of a four four two, more of a four two three one, whichever whichever way you saw the likes of Christoph Baumgartner and Marcel Sabitzer's position. Really, I thought it was more of a four two three one with Sabitzer dropping slightly, slightly, slightly deeper. Austria had the early pressure; they were probably by far the best team in the opening stages in the entire game. Really, let's be honest, and um, they always thought there was a niggling thought at the back of David Alaba's mind of Andrei Yarmolenko, he could break back, break through Alaba. Alaba was playing exceedingly high, and which which is what he should do, which we were all uh, screaming out for him to do against the Netherlands in the previous game, which uh, I think opens up Austria very well, and I think it makes them play a lot better. He was pushing high, but um, in regularity, with the regularity in the first half, I don't think they had the best um, of chances, really. The Of course, the goal comes from a set-piece, but they were they were getting there. They weren't the fluid best that I think they can be. That the potential that they've got. But uh, they were definitely the stronger of the two teams. In Marcel Sabitzer and Ruslan Malinovsky, they had uh, similar fulcrums for their team. Their creative fulcrum. Sabitzer will attempt the shot from distance. I've seen a couple of times in this game, but to uh, to no avail. Sabitzer's range has been slightly off in this tournament. But I, uh, with Italy to come, um, he may grow into it. He may not. Um, Malinovsky, he was, uh, he's more of an assist maker, isn't he? He's got one assist at this tournament already. Whether it, whether or not he'll add to that is uh, completely out of Ukraine's hands now, of course. Um, Austria's chances in the first half were, uh, were restricted to set pieces and from distance. And um, Ukraine, on the other hand, they were, found, they were found in behind Alaba at times, so that was definitely their sort of danger point. But the fact is that they... I got frustrated with Austria against the Netherlands a couple of days ago. I got insanely frustrated with Ukraine here. They didn't... The best player at the tournament has been undoubtedly uh, Yamalenko. They would not find him enough for me, especially when their left back is so attacking. And you've got centre halves who, let's say, in Dragovic and Hinterega aren't the quickest. And just the it only takes a diagonal ball. Obviously, the Zinchenko is a good passer, good creative outlet, slightly deeper than Malinovsky. Malinovsky, of course, as well, but. They just didn't focus any of their play down that right as much as what I'd expect, especially when Alaba was pushing high as we all expect him to do as well. Of course, Alaba is a defense; he's defensively quite good. Um, but obviously, with Austria having a lot more of the possession territory, you do expect Alaba to take up almost a left wing role to be creative, as he is often in an Austria shirt. And of course, it was Alaba who assisted from the corner. Christoph Baumgartner scoring from uh, Austria's fifth corner in the first 20 minutes. There was an obvious uh, ploy there. They've got a tall defence, Dragovic Interregger, of course. Baumgartner, not one you'd expect to be heading in a ball, but he did poke this one in with his uh, toe end and Austria. Took the lead fairly early on. Alaba, for me, at left-back, he's, he's um, for Austria. 
he's got more influence at Austria, of course, with Arnautovic. Um, the ball there is for Arnautovic through the middle. And I think him at left-back, when Austria do play for at the back, they're so much better. Against Macedonia, he moved out wide late on and edged them forward with two late goals, providing an assist as well, one of the best assists at the tournament, I seem to remember. And here against Ukraine, they were by far the most superior team. But then against the Netherlands, which is something that I fear for in Austria in the last 16 against Italy now with this 1-0 win, I fear that they'll revert to him playing sweeper in a 5-3-2. And it won't do them any good because Austria need to push. All, all that Austria playing 5-3-2 will do is um, drop Austria exceedingly deep. We know Italy like to uh, press extremely high and extremely energetically. That they'll just get caught in defence or they'll just be pinned back. And I think Alaba, what he brings is, he brings them further up the pitch and he brings them uh, creativity. And with people in the middle like Arnautovic and then with people in the middle like Sabitz are looking on for second ball knockdowns, who's fairly adept at scoring from distance as well. Tottenham fans will remember him in the uh, in the Champions League last 16 a couple of years back. They've got players there. The midfield, I thought, was fantastic today, uh, yesterday. Javier Schlager has had a good tournament as well. Great at breaking from midfield. You've also got Christoph Baumgartner, a young, exciting winger from uh, Hoffenheim, who I liked as well. They've got players there who can sort of, if they're not in, breaking into the box, they're sitting deeper and then attacking from deep. And Alaba brings them into the game attacking, offensively rather, that's not a word, offensively, and they're just so much better with him either on the left-hand side of midfield or uh, left-back. Obviously, he can play centre-mid, but I think he, from out wide, brings a lot of good play for Austria in wide positions. And, of course, with this 1-0, it is Austria's first knockout stage appearance in any tournament since the 1954 World Cup when they reached the semi-finals. Austria have only had two knockout stage appearances. I'm not sure if you can call the 1934 World Cup a knockout stage appearance because it was all knockout, but they got to the semi-finals there as well, so let's give them the benefit of the doubt on that one. Um, which for an established nation like that is just absolutely absolutely mind-numbing, really, when you think about the history of the you know the Wunder team that they had in the 30s, and etc., etc. I just hope that, um, going back to Aliba, that he's, him at left-back just purely wasn't there to nullify Yarmolenko. I think he should be there permanently, but I do fear that when they play Italy, they'll drop back into a 5-3-2. I thought Conrad Leimer looked a lot sharper in the midfield for Austria. And in terms of the midfield, in spite of the Christoph Baumgartner injury, it came off like a head injury, or was it more of a neck injury? I'm not too sure. There was pictures of him with an ice pack on the back of his neck. Um, I thought the Austrian midfield looked fantastic. But unfortunately, we, we can't discuss a Ukraine game for much longer without discussing my boy. Roman Yaramchuk, completely isolated, wasn't he? I've got him on for the golden boot. He's got two goals, he's officially out of it. If Ukraine don't qualify, of course, he could have, uh, if he nicked a goal here, tie level with Lukaku and then just hope for the rest of the tournament is goalless. But unfortunately, it looks as though the Roman Yaramchuk golden boot train is derailed or is it because Finland went below Ukraine in the uh, third place standings which means Ukraine have got a little bit of a hope here um, they do need officially that their place in the last 16 can be confirmed tonight if it's a big if Croatia and Scotland draw and if they do and with um, two more groups to play but obviously uh, Portugal are on group F rather higher than 
Ukrainian standing, so they won't really affect Ukraine all that much. Um, I think, I think, don't quote me on it, that uh, if Croatia and Scotland draw tonight, then uh, my boy, Roman Yaramchuk, the golden boot dream will still be alive. But there is a chance they will face a very tough last 16. Of course, they'll face a tough last 16 draw. They'll be third place, um, hopefully, for in terms of my boy, Roman Yaramchuk and his golden boot train. Yeah, they could play Sweden. The team that's a bit more that will will perhaps look favourites to win their group, Group E. Um, bag a few goals against them if he do, if he goes through. If he doesn't, and if he's got five goals, I'll be happy with that hat trick essentially. But it's not going to happen. He's uh, he offered absolutely nothing, didn't he? Um, likewise, Ruslan Malinovsky. I was disappointed with him again. Um, hold off at half time. Didn't really offer much of anything. Um, Zinchenko moved a bit higher. You could see he was getting really frustrated with his teammate Zinchenko. Obviously, used to playing with a lot, a, bit, a better caliber player um, with his club side. But Ukraine were very disappointing after the first, after the promise of the first two games. Even the the Netherlands game, I thought they looked dangerous. But here, no. Um, there was a moment where I got out of my seat when Roman Yarmchuk fist one wide. But that, that was the that was the uh, start and end of my excitement in this game. It was a poor game. Austria were. They played very well, 1-0, and they deserved it. Um, but obviously, I fear for Austria in the last 16. Obviously, they are against Italy on Saturday night at Wembley. And in terms of Ukraine, it looks like it could be Sweden. Meanwhile, the Netherlands, after their win against Macedonia, they were through as group winners anyway. Um, they have a 50-50 chance now, realistically at least, to face third from Group D, which could be Croatia, it could be Scotland. Could even be England, could be anyone, let's be honest. Or third from Group F, um, the chance I think it's uh, 50-50 because Finland likely won't get out of the uh, last the third place. As qualifiers, I don't think that's going to be the case, unfortunately, for the Finns. But um, that means that it will be either probably, let's just wait on probability, Croatia or Scotland or Portugal or Germany, or France, or Hungary, to be honest. And like I say, it's hard to predict, isn't it? So we go to Amsterdam. It was nice to see Daniel Marlin and Ryan Gravenberg coming in for minutes under their belt. There wasn't too much rotation for the Dutch, which was uh, kind of surprising to see since uh, the, uh, they didn't really have anything to play for. They could have got beaten 43-0 and they'd have still finished top. <laughs> but uh, obviously Frank de Boer wants to keep that, wants to keep that momentum going, and they did so. Um, Macedonia reverted to four at the back and uh, the Netherlands pressed very high. Denzel Dumfries, of course, a staple of this tournament, pushing high as ever. And uh, Gravenbo- Gravenberg got a uh, pot shot off early, which uh, sadly didn't didn't make the net. I thought Daniel Marlin, though, the other change that came in, I thought he was very, very sharp, making good runs. I was very impressed with him, especially his link-up with uh, Memphis Depay. Memphis was finding all kinds of good spaces in the in the final third for the Netherlands. I think him and Marlon is a is a different option for the Dutch. He's, the, the combinations were fantastic. Obviously, they combined for the first goal. Macedonia, though, they were very, very unfortunate. The uh, had a goal ruled out for offside, which is the second time it's happened to Macedonia, which is very unfortunate. But they showed that they weren't pushovers at times, although the second half, it was just more of a bit of a... It was probably a bit of a capitulation, wasn't it, really... Pandev, of course, came off um, halfway through the second half with his final game for the country. Um, one of the oldest players at the tournament as well. It's a nice moment to see him um, walking off with the uh, rest of the players, each 
giving him a kiss and a cuddle as he <laughs> as he walks off the pitch and um, bringing the end to his international career, which ended prematurely, maybe temporarily as well, um, before. But he came back, got them into the championships, of course. We mustn't forget that. And uh, been a great servant for his country. And he did all right. He scored their only goal from open play at this tournament, of course. He probably, if he'd timed his run better in the previous game against uh, against Ukraine, he would have had a second which is unfortunate. Um, Trikovsky and Trikowski were probably a bit more, a bit more of a threat on the break than Pandev, though. Uh, but the Netherlands, I thought defensively, they were a lot better this game. The first game, they were an absolute shamble defensively. Second game, a little bit better. And this game, it seems as though everything's sort of clicking into place for the Dutch. And uh, we've seen this before, though, haven't we? We've seen this at Euro 2008, where they uh, got won 100% of their games tapped 3-1 three, three, by Russia in the quarterfinals. We've seen it in 2000 where they beat the French, the world champions at the time, only then to go out in semi-finals on via a penalty shootout, one of the worst penalty shootouts I've ever seen against Italy and uh, France, of course. Won that tournament, didn't they? So Memphis Depay was uh, increasingly a threat uh, going into the second half. He found good spaces. He assisted Gene Wijnaldum. And um, Wijnaldum joined the golden boot race with a rebound scoring uh, the Dutch's third goal in a 3-0 win there. His second goal there was his uh, 24th, I believe, in a Dutch shirt, which puts him level with uh, level with Marco van Basten, which is a quirky little stat from yesterday, isn't it? And um, the Netherlands could have had six or seven quite easy. Vout Vegas came off the bench, hit the bar. Mathis de Litt had a header off the line. Daniel Marling was always threatening. Denzel Dumfries as well in that sort of like right channel were... They were always threatening Memphis to pie, of course. is always great, isn't he? And um, plain sailing for the Dutch, which, as I've just detailed, isn't always great, is it? Um, but uh, as we've seen, these they'll play their first knockout stage game since the penalty shootout defeat to Argentina in the 2014 FIFA World Cup. Obviously, I'm not counting the third-place playoff win against Brazil there because it's not really knockout, is it? It's more of a glorified friendly but uh, Netherlands progress with uh, with the likes of Belgium and Italy on 100% records. And I think the reason why we're not discussing the Dutch as amongst the front runners, like in Italy, Belgium, France, or let's whisper it quietly, England, is, is because they've probably had the easiest group. They've not been truly tested, a bit like Italy, but the calibre of opponents that they've faced. Ukraine, we've seen they've up and down a little bit. Austria can be abject, can be okay. North Macedonia arguably one of the worst teams at the tournament, but they did show a little bit of fight in their other two games. I worry, the, I worry for them defensively against the top teams. Denzel Dumfries is very, very high. You come up against a, an Italian team with Spinazzola who's equally as high. He could, could find himself pushed back to or found one in um, positionally. Um, same with Germany, with Gerson's. There's a lot of teams that can hurt the Dutch defensively. Uh, defensively, I don't think they're all there. De Litt has brought a bit of solidity back to them, really. And I do think uh, the back three of Daly Blind, of Stefan de Vrij, of Mathis De Litt is uh, very, very good and solid. But I just worry about if they maintain this high defensive line that they have done, maybe they'll uh, have to push that back. They are going deeper and deeper as the tournament goes on. I hope for their sake that that continues and they don't just go crazy like they did against Ukraine, that bizarre 1-4-5 formation that they seem to be playing. And um, they do have the kind of quarter of the draw, on paper at least, but we do have to wait for that third place team that they'll play. 60% of their sort of remaining outcomes for third place teams has them playing 
the third place in Group F, which could be Portugal, could be Germany, could be France. So that's a very difficult task. I wouldn't have the Netherlands as favourites in that they'll be away from home. So that's another factor we need to uh, count towards the Dutch here um, because obviously a lot of teams now who who perform so well, uh, Belgium aside, have done so, France aside really, uh, have done so away from ho- uh, at home and then leaving their home could be a completely different thing. Also, it could relieve pressure almost. Um, Italy looked very assured again in Rome, didn't they? They could uh, falter outside Rome. They will play that quarterfinal if they do get through against Austria, of course, which I fully expect them to do. That is in Munich, so they won't play another game in Rome, I don't think. No, they're playing at Wembley and then Munich if they get through, and then obviously the last stages are at Wembley, so Italy won't be in Rome now again for the remainder of the tournament, which could hinder them, but I think they've got enough quality for any home away advantage, especially under restrictions and rules like that. It won't come into play too much. The only thing that could hamper teams is probably travel, And it's something that the Dutch will need to be thinking about if they do get through this last 16 tie because their quarterfinal against Wales or Denmark now, which we know, um, will be in Baku. So you've got to travel to Baku and then back to Wembley if you do get through. Of course, you cannot discount Wales in this, but if the Dutch get through that last 16, I think they will reach the semi-finals of the time. Of course, Wales will be excited to play Denmark and Netherlands to get to a semi-final of a major tournament. You'd take that all day long if you're Welsh, wouldn't you? And um, it's certainly more favourable than some quarters of the draw that we've seen, obviously. Belgium's on it, or Italy's rather. Getting through one of those would be very, very difficult as well. So we know very little about uh, the last 16 ties from this group, apart from Austria playing Italy. Ukraine hanging by a thread, really. They do need um, a Scotland-Croatia draw to qualify tonight, but if that doesn't happen, they will need Spain and Poland to lose which I don't think that's likely is it Um, if Spain draw with Slovakia they will edge Ukraine out on goal difference because Spain will have zero because they've drawn all three games akin to Portugal in 2016 so maybe there's a little omen there for their Iberian neighbours right let's preview the big games from tonight we've got England versus Czech Republic Scotland versus Croatia and thanks to the disgrace of Gijon in in 1982 they both played at 8pm and so England versus Czech Republic. The mood was high before the tournament began, all these attacking options for Gareth Southgate. Now the mood is significantly lower and I don't think, for me, for England, the optimism after Croatia was probably a bit too high. The pessimism against after the draw against Scotland is probably a bit too low. Obviously, the news from last night was that uh, Mason Mount and Ben Chilwell are Doubts after um, self-isolating COVID, obviously with Billy Gilmore, who will be ruled out for the next for the for the group stage and a potential last sixteen tie. He's got to self-isolate after testing positive for coronavirus. So, it, I don't think it'll make too much difference for England. Ben Chilwell hasn't played a minute at this tournament. Mason Mount, he will if he can't play. There's more than enough for Gareth Southgate more than enough avenues for him to go down he could play Jordan Henderson there but obviously England fans will be hoping for Jack Grealish in terms of the position that Mount takes up it's more of a 4-2-3-1 with uh, the what England play with Mount on the left channel really and Grealish I think can take up that that space really because if you have Raheem Sterling on the left wing which England probably will play tonight Grealish is probably adept at patrolling that little space in the left channel and either finding a man 
or dribbling through, carrying it into the box, winning a foul perhaps. And uh, obviously those set pieces that England crave that worked so well in 2018, but aren't working as well this time. Um, for me, this clamour for Jack, there's always going to be clamour for Jack Grealish, isn't there? Because he's a little bit more unknown for England. I think there's a lot more clamour because he's something that England don't have another one of. Obviously, Sancho, Sterling, they're fairly similar in that they'll they'll get beyond the attacker. Sancho is slightly different because he's more of an assist maker, isn't he? And uh, Sterling will uh, Sterling will bomb on, as we saw in the first game, score that goal against Croatia. For me, Grealish is something that England don't have, which is why there's probably that clamour. He can carry the ball. He's insanely good at drawing fouls, at keeping the ball, retaining possession, finding a man, and then uh, oh, scoring perhaps as well. And uh, I'd love to see a Jack Grealish goal in this game. I think... I think he will probably, Southgate that being, probably go for Jack Grealish in this game if Mount can't play. Obviously, if Mount is available, he will start every game for me for England. And rightly so, I think Mount's one of the uh, key players for England. On the other hand, though, I, in terms of clamour, there's a lot of clamour for players and systems, isn't there, this time? There always is, especially when you come to England. Um, I would have Jaden Sancho in there. It's a mystery why he hasn't played a single minute at this tournament when he's one of the most deadliest assist makers, goal scorers in the past few seasons for Borussia Dortmund. Not only in the Bundesliga, but in the Champions League, let's not forget it. Performed well against in the in the big games for Dortmund, in the you know, cup wins against Leipzig in um, Bayern. He's provided good performances in in the Allianz Arena. He's played well in the new camp. So this um accusation of lack of experience is baffling from uh, Southgate. I'm sure those words have been twisted out of all proportion, but he's uh, definitely a headline that's been made in the run-up to this game. I do think Sancho will get... He must be he must be getting on the pitch at this game. Otherwise, it's just baffling for me because he's a bit like Grealish, where he's probably the most... The more unique of the wingers, Grealish and Sancho, really, which is probably why this clamour for them, but uh, as we know, Southgate goes for his trusted employees, Raheem Sterling. Obviously, Harry Kane will start up front. There's been a few whispers on social media for clamouring for Calvert-Lewin, which, yeah, doesn't make much sense to me anyway. Um, in terms of going forward, I, for me, if I was England manager, I would go for Grealish, Sancho, Sterling, Kane up front in the 4-2-3-1 with Grealish slightly deeper in that Mount role if Mount does not play. Grealish for me, as I said before, the time is an impact player and I think this tournament we're seeing more and more late goals, more and more second half goals. Jack Grealish can completely turn a game on its head if he comes on and there's no shame, there's no there's no negativity about that really for me because it's just tournament football for me is pragmatism and Certain situations in certain, certain against certain teams, Grealish can come on. If say, for example, England are playing, let's pick a name out of the hat: France in the uh, last sixteen. France could be slightly uh, confident. They might be one nil up, for example. It could be nil nil. It could be going towards extra time. Bring Jack Grealish on, and it's a completely different headache for them. That the uh, they could be well versed in, but it's obviously something different to think about. And with flagging minds and you know flagging bodies in the last few knockings of a game, Jack Grealish coming on against France is is a complete game changer that I think very few other nations have in terms of um, difference of approach. So say if, say if Sancho comes if he starts a game for England, which is you know forty chess thinking in terms of Gareth Southgate. Um, if you bring Grealish on, he offers something completely different and 
the preparation, the the running through the motion for the previous 80 minutes or previous 60 minutes. And then Griezsch comes on. He offered a little bit more, a little bit something different against uh, Scotland in the final 30 minutes. Sort of wound up Stephen O'Donnell a little bit and he's slightly a bit more positive. I think he's directing his dribbling, he's carrying. I think he's a very good, obviously he's a very good footballer. That's why there's so much clamour for him, isn't there? But um, I just think he's better off, off coming off the bench and... I don't think that's a slight on him because if you look at the talent that England have got in attacking positions, it's up there with the best at the tournament. And coming off the bench, as I said earlier on in the uh, earlier on in this tournament, Jeff Hurst didn't play for England until the quarterfinals in the 1966 World Cup. So it's no slight on Jack Grealish or Jaden Sancho, perhaps. Although Jaden Sancho for me is becoming a lot more inevitable that he has to start. It's reaching that point now. I don't think, I think Foden really, is, his form probably keeps him in the squad ahead of Sancho if you're Gareth Southgate. But if I was going to play it, it would be Sancho starting. Maybe the thing for me is Czech Republic have slow defenders. They've got defenders who prefer an aerial duel, who prefer to sit deep. If you have Sancho and Sterling in there, they'll uh, run on. They'll be too mobile. Obviously Kane isn't that speedy attacker, is he? I think uh, Sancho, Sterling, Kane dropping deeper, Grealish creating. That would be the best avenue to go down for England. I'm sorry, any Czech listeners who were hoping for an in-depth discussion about the 4-2-3-1 that Czech Republic play with Alex Kral and Thomas Suchek and their uh, pivotal roles to this team. I'm very sorry, but obviously I'm English and this is <laughs> quite an English-based uh, podcast. Obviously, Czech Republic, we've got Jakub Janta, Patrick Schick as well, who I think combine very, very well on that left channel. That will be the danger points for Czech Republic. You've got Vladimir De Rieder as well, uh, who's quite, I think he's 30 years old. Uh, he's um, fairly attacking as well. He will uh, supplement Thomas Socek and uh, Alex Crowell, I believe. And um, those five, is it five? Yep, those five players, <laughs> I think, are the most dangerous threats for Czech Republic. Equally, I do think uh, Czech Republic, their centre-halves, won't be as equipped to deal with England's forwards as um, English defenders will be against Czech Republic, especially if Harry Maguire plays, um, which if he's to factor in at this tournament, I think he should start. I should also, I think uh, Jordan Henderson should start ahead of Calvin Phillips as well, just to get him some minutes on the board. Obviously, Calvin Phillips can come in and we all know his energy levels because he's a Leeds United footballer, isn't he? So we all know his energy levels. Let's move on to the other game because I've waffled on for far too long about England versus Czech Republic there. So let's go to the other Group D fixture, which is just as important, really. Despite England and Czech Republic, uh, they're both qualifying after last night's results. Scotland and Croatia can join them in the last 16 with a win. Obviously, a draw eliminates both as we are sat here now on Tuesday morning. Billy Gilmore, as previously stated, is out of the group stage final um, and the last 16, a potential last 16, ties he has to self-isolate for 10 days. And I thought it was fantastic. Obviously, a one-man of the match against England on Friday night. And that's just such a blow. It's a crushing blow for Scotland. He dictated their play against England. But, but, Scotland have more than enough here, I believe. I'm not going to be wildly confident and uh, say they're going to beat Croatia easily, but they've got enough players there especially on home turf. Maybe the emotions of it might might overcome them, but I think they got those out of the way against Czech Republic in the first game, which is why I think it sort of fell quite nicely for Scotland, really, because you had a, you got all the emotions out of it against Czech Republic. Perhaps that game could have come against Croatia and then you play Czech Republic last, but this is the way it's fallen. And then you've got a, 
sort of a bonus match against England, which they took something from, which is, you know, fantastic for Scotland. And then going into the last game, Croatia, who they've got their team in transition, which I've said all through the tournament, really. They're, they are there to be beaten. They have still got, obviously, world-class players, Luka Modric, for one, who is one of the last few Ballon d'Or winners. But this is a Croatia team that I think you can get at. Vlatko Dalic, there's clamour for him to play a 4-2-3-1, which he did against uh, Czech Republic on Friday, but not with the player that everyone wants to play. They want Nikola Vlasic in there. So he's he's the Croatian version of Jack Grealish, I think, going into this game. They want a 4-2-3-1. They want Nikola Vlasic in there. And I think Ante Rebic hasn't offered much of um, anything, really, in the first two games. If um, I think the better option would be Vlasic in there, Kramaric up top, and um, Perisic out wide as well. He could also play that in a 4-3-3, really. Um, Vlasic dropping, uh, Kramaric dropping out wide as well. Croatia can only finish second in this group if England get a win over Czech Republic because of the head-to-head record. Obviously, Croatia can't go above England here. A point in the other game in Group D would mean third for Croatia or Scotland, should there be a winner there. I think Scotland have got a very good chance. They've got actual strength in depth here and uh, Scott McTominay could easily return to that defensive midfield role. And there's enough, I think, in the midfield with uh, Jack Hendry, Liam Cooper, Grant Hanley, Kieran uh, Tierney, of course, centre mid, uh, centre back rather. Enough rotation there, enough strength in depth for Scotland to be enough of a problem. Obviously, it's not the role you want Scott McTominay in. You want him more of an eight. But in John McGinn and in uh, Callum McGregor, in Stuart Armstrong, in Ryan Christie, you've got more than enough there to cause Croatia a lot of problems. And this is a game that, that will be won in midfield with obviously the metronomic Kovacic, Modric, and even Brozovic if he plays a bit deeper, which um, I'm not expecting him to if they play 4-2-3-1, which it was Modric and Kovacic at 4-2-3-1 against Czech Republic. And I think... To those players not technically defensively minded and if you can find John McGinnin behind them if plays a bit more offensively if Steve Clark opts for a bit more offensively in this game I think that could be an avenue to be explored obviously you need in this system Che Adams and Lyndon Dykes in uh, tandem really which I think is, is the most prosperous avenue for Scotland to go down of course you've got Andy Robertson left wing back who will be creative as well for Scotland Stephen O'Donnell I hope I I had called for him to be left out of the England game, but he proved me wrong and he had a fantastic game against England. He will have the confidence now, especially the backing of Hamden as well. And I hope he has a good game as well. Um, those will be sort of the, that three, O'Donnell, Robertson and McGinn there in behind the strikers, sort of in between the Croatian defence and the midfield. Lovren and Vida are there to be got out, I believe. And I think Scotland could win, could beat Croatia. Now, that's my prediction. Whether or not it'll come through, come true. Obviously, both teams now the the fate is clear. If they win, they're through. And if they win, they're probably going to face the Netherlands. They could face the winner of Group E, which is Sweden. Obviously, the most uh, probably the preferable one is Sweden. But um, we will uh, see. Probably tomorrow we'll find out tomorrow, won't we? Uh, with the conclusion of the groups there. Um, second place will play one of Sweden, Slovakia, Spain, or Poland. So none of that is. Uh, None of that is sealed yet. Sweden obviously through with uh, yeah, with yesterday's results. It will be Sweden if Sweden draw and Slovakia beats Spain or Spain beats Slovakia by two goals. It's complicated in Group E. Let's say that Spain will go, Spain will be second if they win and Sweden win. 
Slacky will be second if Slacky get a point against Spain. Meanwhile, it could be Poland if Poland beat Sweden and Spain lose, which is unlikely, but it could still be that. Of course, the winner of Group E, a winner of Group D, will play second place in Group F, which could be France if France draw and Germany win. It could be Germany if Germany and France win. It could be Portugal if Portugal and France win, and it even could be Hungary. It could be Hungary if Hungary and France win, or if Hungary win and Portugal win and there's a four-goal swing against France, but that's not going to happen, is it? So everything is to play for. We are reaching the conclusion of the group stages. Thank you for sticking around on a bumper episode of the Euro Daily podcast. And until tomorrow, see the... Is it coming home? Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.